Let's get going. It's great to see you guys. Insane uh, how warm it is. You guys are pretty excited about the uh, weather, constant weather shifts. Pretty incredible. Now, um, one of the things I know about this room, if we were to go around and uh, reveal our hidden talents, I know that we're a very talented uh, uh, church community. I know there would be many hidden talents in this room. I'm sure that uh, we could find some. My wife, for instance, uh, some of you guys may know this. She has a very elastic uh, skin. Her skin is very stretchy, okay? And I know uh, some of you guys, well, I think Lori knows that. Lori's seen Heidi's stretchy skin. Please don't ask her to show you. That's kind of rude and inappropriate. Uh, however, um, uh, it, it is pretty interesting. She can take, like, the skin of her arm, and it, like, goes, like, down, like, six or seven inches. Pretty crazy. Uh, I actually have a hidden talent that I'd like to reveal to you guys tonight. Um, this is kind of like show and tell. I, I've been, I've always longed to, like, really... Uh, dig in and finally portray my uh, my artist ability, and so I've done that for you guys here tonight. Uh, this is um, I drew this today, and uh, I'm pretty I'm pretty excited about it. This is uh, this is my <laughs> thank you. I appreciate the encouragement. This is my rendition of the neighborhood that I grew up in. Okay, this was my neighborhood. Now I want to show you a few things about this. Uh, you'll see you'll see me there on the bike uh, in front of the house entitled me. Um, the, the circle underneath that, we had an above ground pool when I was growing up. Anyone else? Pretty rowdy. Okay. Like above grounds are, are unbelievable, man. They're just, there's something about them that now, um, the, the person on the right, um, that's my rendition of a gremlin. Um, the house to the right of me, the, that house, that friend introduced me to the movie gremlins, which absolutely changed my life for the worse. I mean, I had like seven years worth of nightmares. I still... So that's a stick gremlin there uh, on the right-hand side. Um, the person to the left of me, uh, I put Shauna there. I know you can't read my Etch-a-Sketch writing there. Uh, but she, um, she actually was a good friend, a little bit older than me, taught me how to ride a bike. Some of you guys have heard me share the story before. When I was seven, she actually died uh, half a mile behind her house in a drunk driving accident. So I have a lot of great memories of Shauna, a great woman. Uh, the house there on the left-hand side... I put uh, underneath that, I wanted to marry her. She was my first love, kind of catty corner to our house. That's my rendition of her beauty there. No eyes, but a big smiley face. And the best part of my neighborhood growing up was we had a fire station on the, like it was a really small country, uh, but we had a fire station on the end. So that's my fire truck. And uh, the best part about it was it, it had a soda machine. And when you're a kid, if you can ride your bike to a soda machine, like, it's, it's, it's an unbelievable opportunity, you know? So we would save up, and I think back then it was like 30 cents for a can of soda. It was unbelievable. Anywho, what we would do in our neighborhood every uh, afternoon after school is all of us would get on our bikes, all those friends. We would just, you know, make a ruckus and ride around. About 5, 5.15, inevitably, something started to happen, okay? The first mom of one of these houses, and normally we were like in the upper tier of our neighborhood, getting as far away from our homes as possible, the first mom would open up her door and scream at the top of her lungs, like dinner or food or get your booty here, like whatever it is that she said. And it was unbelievable because we could be, we could literally be a block away, like on the full other side of this neighborhood. But whoever's mom was calling, it was like a tractor beam to that kid. You know what I'm saying? Like there was never any confusion about whose mom was yelling, though there were multiple voices yelling at us. I mean, the moment mom yelled out, dinner time, that kid just instantly turned around and knew, like, instantaneously that that was their mom's 
voice. Did you guys have that growing up at all, like in your neighborhoods? And one of our friends actually got creative. They had like a little bell. It kind of felt like a dog bell or something. Like, come here, you know, Fido, it's time to eat. It was kind of weird. But um, it's so interesting how the prominent voices in our life, like you can just pick those out. For those of you that are married, I would imagine very easily I could bring uh, 10 women up here, include your wife and one of them, and you would just be instantly able to pick that voice out, especially if they were nagging. Like you could just instantly <laughs> pull. Um, I'm just kidding. I know wives don't nag here at all. Um, I don't even know what that means. But um, Now, uh, it's unbelievable how many voices are seeking our attention and yet how distinct the right ones are. Uh, Jesus said this in uh, John, uh, next slide, in John chapter 10, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. In other words, the followers of Jesus are able to decipher the voice of the Christ out of all the other voices. Uh, My fear, though, is that we're not hearing it. Uh, the scripture is very clear that, that my sheep, like, they, they hear my voice. They, they know it's me. They're able to pick it out of the crowd. My fear is that that's not happening for us, or at least we struggle in it. And so tonight, in the text, we're going to get to the heart and the core of this issue. But before we do this, I want to get on the same page by asking a few questions about voices, and especially as they pertain to God. The first question is this. If you had the opportunity to hear the voice of God, would you want to? Okay, this is a rhetorical question. Maybe a nod of the head is fine. But if someone gave the opportunity, they're like, listen, uh, today at 10 a.m., you're going to be able to hear the voice of God. Would you check yes, please, right? Or would you check no thanks? Second thing is this. Have you ever heard his voice? And if so, what did God say? This is one of the most interesting topics, especially in the Christian circles, because we're very quick to say things that uh, question three addresses. If someone says to you that God has told them to do something or that God spoke to them, what are your first thoughts typically? How often do people that are Christians come up to you and say, "I, I know for sure that God told me to do this. I heard his voice. I know for sure it was him. When you hear someone say that to you, what are the first thoughts going on in your mind? Maybe it's cynicism, maybe it's no way, maybe it's prove that. I'm not sure what it is. My friends, tonight, a journey through hearing the voice of God through a very, very strange passage. We're going to read this passage in its entirety, and at first glance, you're going to be like, como se dice? Like, I'm not sure. Is this English? But as it unfolds, my friends, it's going to be beautiful. So open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to get through quite a bit tonight, 18 to 24 in Hebrews 12. Next week, we'll finish up uh, chapter 12 and only have one chapter to go here in Hebrews. Pretty exciting. Last week, if you were with us, we focused on the difference between uh, regretting and repenting. Uh, That regret is something that uh, we just, we feel bad that we got caught, that we did something. On the flip side, repentance is is recognizing that we have sinned against God, turning from that sin and turning to God. And so right after that, we pick up here in uh, chapter 12, verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. Uh, You see see what I'm saying, right? Uh, And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words 
made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So, so you're, okay, Moses, I got it, right? Like Moses is there. That's pretty much the only thing I understand about this first part. All right, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering. That sounds fun. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous who made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. There's Jesus, that's good. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, here's what I love about the scripture and in teaching it the way that we do. I would imagine in your own personal study, you get to this passage and you're like, uh, no way, right? Like, give me some, like, just resist the devil, submit to God, and he will, like, give me something that's easy. I would imagine rarely in your own personal study you would, like, yes, like, let's dig into this. The problem is if you skip a passage like this, it, you're missing some incredibly beautiful stuff. So let's break it down, all right? Here we go. We're going to deal with this in chunks, because these chunks are what make up the text. So the first chunk, let's reread this for a second. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Have you ever been in a conversation where there's a group of people talking and you walk in 20 minutes after they started, it's incredibly awkward? You know what I'm saying? Like, if, like where a bunch of friends are telling some long story, you can tell, but you want to be a part of it, so you just like find your way into the conversation, but then any, everyone starts acting weird because they know that they're going to have to build 20 minutes worth of context. You know what I'm saying? So instead, everyone just stands there and it just gets really... Honestly, this is kind of like that moment in, in the scripture. Here's why. The, the, the audience are Jewish Christians who understand exactly what the writer is talking about. They understand the context. They're Jews. They know their history. Well, especially in this moment, we're like people who have kind of like come in and we don't understand the context, and so we're like trying to piece it all together in our mind. But any of us would say, I don't know what that means, right? Like, that's a strange text that sounds like a different language. So tonight, we're not going to assume that we know it because we don't. Rather, we're going to try to understand what the writer's saying. Are we together? Okay. So we're the people coming in the conversation, and God in his grace says, okay, hold on. Let me explain this to you. Well, this is specifically referencing something in the Old Testament from Exodus chapter 19. So I'm going to put this text on the screen. We're going to walk through it piece by piece, and in the hopes, build some sense to this. Let's begin in Exodus 19, verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. Now what's happening is God is getting ready to encounter his people in a very intimate, forthright way. And so he's preparing Moses and the people who have just come out of slavery in Egypt for this epic encounter in verse 11. And be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. We'll look at the mountain here in a second. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain, and we just referenced this in Hebrews, shall be put to death. Uh, well, if you're like me, this is an incredibly strange command. Whoever touches the mountain is going to instantly die because apparently 
God in all of his glory is going to be coming on this particular mountain. And because of that, his holiness is so renowned that if you just touch it, you're going to die. No hand shall touch it, but he shall be stoned or shot. That's interesting. Whether beast or man, so an animal, he shall not live. And when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come to the mountain. Now, if you have any biblical understanding, you've heard of Mount Sinai before. This is the primary mountain that God speaks to Moses. This is what it looks like. Um, it's, I took this picture uh, earlier today. Um, this is very, uh, this is a lot of desert here. Again, you'll know that the Israelites are in the desert. They're wandering around. Uh, God has yet to bring them to the promised land. And, and they're all at the base of this mountain. And so it's, it's really good for us to understand because there's not much around here. And so when you think of the Israelites being in the wilderness, being in the wilderness now has new meaning. It's very mountainous. This is difficult terrain to navigate. And they're all waiting on the Lord to come. So a few verses after we stopped, back in Exodus 19, the scripture says this. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Now, uh, God's voice has spoken many times in the scripture up to this point, but there's been a drastic theme with God's voice in the Israelites. And in this case, uh, I don't know how many fans uh, of thunder there are, but as a kid, thunder is one of the most fearful sounds that you have. I can remember many nights seeing the lightning that shines through my window and then hearing the thunder and instantly thinking the world was going to end. Anyone else? Anyone still like that? You're just like, I hate thunder. Okay, we have one and a few liars unwilling to admit their, uh, their uh, you know, fear of thunder. What's that phobia called? Thunder phobia? I don't know. Whatever. Anyway, God's voice speaks in thunder. Now, th- this is one of those passages that's really difficult for us to understand and that feels like a fairy tale. However, it is not. The voice of God in this mountain, coming down in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called to Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord and look, and many of them perish. God's voice, so thunderous, so intense, so all-consuming. That anyone who even touches the mountain where he is residing. Next slide. In Hebrews 12, we see this phenomenal picture. For you have not come to what may be touched. He's referring to Mount Sinai. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest. He's quoting Deuteronomy 4, another portrayal of this. In other words, you haven't come to this same mountain where these people were all gathered around Mount Sinai. And the sound of a trumpet and voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. A crazy passage. Later in this story, what happens is the people are so struck with awe from the thunderous voice of God that they literally ask God to stop talking. And it's not because they're disagreeing with what he's saying. It's because it is so overwhelming, they can barely even take it. Many of you guys who know Jewish history, you know, they would rarely even utter the name of God because it held so much power. They had so much fear of it, so much awe of it. 
For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. They were so overwhelmed with the thunderous voice of God. And then he closes with his biggest argument. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, quoting a later passage in Deuteronomy. Even Moses, who had heard the voice of the Lord in a very intimate way, including a burning bush, says, I tremble with fear. Next slide. Now we can learn three big things from Exodus chapter 19, including Hebrews chapter 12. The first is this, God is all-powerful. I love the amazing picture of the thunderous voice of God coming in smoke on a mountain, and the scripture later says that it shook. Again, it's hard for us to picture that. We're so disconnected from something like that in the Old Testament. But the scriptures are packed, filled with the teaching and the message that God is all-powerful. The second thing we can learn from this is that God in this picture is unapproachable. This is a tough thing to see in the Old Testament, that, that these people, outside of Moses and a few exceptions later in the Old Testament, could not even approach God. And what did the scriptures say? If they did, they would what? They would die. God and man was completely disconnected after sin entered the world through Adam and Eve. This is a difficult picture, but a very real one. And the last is this that we can learn from these two. God is terrifying. Moses struck with terror. Now, the literal uh, meaning of this isn't maybe something that you would define as appropriate, but a, a terrifying, in, in this case, in, that we saw at the end of the verse there, is literally just so gripped with fear, so shaken with fear, that it creates this massive tension in you. God is terrifying in this picture. I would imagine that if any of us were there on that day, there would be the shaking piece of our heart that would ask the same, please stop talking, your power is too great. Now, he's talking about the old covenant here. In other words, he's talking about pre-Jesus here. Remember, he's talking to Jewish Christians on this side of the cross. And what did he open with in verse 18? For you have not come to something that you can touch. These people, they could touch Mount Sinai. If they did, they would die. And the point he's trying to make is this. Some of you are still at the base of Mount Sinai believing that God is still unapproachable. Some of you are still at the base of Mount Sinai believing that God is terrifying. Now certainly you would say anyone whether before Jesus or not, would agree that God is all-powerful. But I want to know this. How many of you here tonight, you literally, because of past sins of yours, shame that's built up, a sense of uh, intimidation that's grown, you literally will not even consider approaching God in fear of what He might say. I had a coach in football in college who had a, a horrible uh, chewing habit, uh, in fact, his teeth were so eroded that he uh, like had like a single like the sole tooth like what do you call that the what do you call what's that dinosaur that had anyway um, and uh, snaggletooth that's what I was thinking of 
I don't know if that's a dinosaur, but um, <laughs> Chew had so eroded his uh, bottom teeth, but that was part of his intimidation. Uh, when I came onto campus, uh, Coach Poker was his name. He was the coach that, like, you didn't want to hear from, you didn't want to talk to. If he ever spoke to you, you knew that you were going to be demeaned. He had that, like, that sort of intimidation. Uh, one day I remember, and I was, I think, just sharing this with a group of people at the MV not too long ago, but one day I remember I had uh, done something inappropriately, and um, Coach Poker, Sigma, come over here, but it, it was, like, much louder. I just don't want to scare you. It was much louder and much more, like, gremlin-ish. He said, uh, Sigma, come over here, and, uh, and so I, he, he, like, grabs my, my helmet, and then he starts yelling at me, but his chew that's still in his mouth is going all over my face and stuff, and so I just have... Like brown chunks all over my, literally. That was your biggest fear, right? And so, not, not just because he was the head coach or that he came in thunder. Like if you were walking down the hallway and Coach Pelker was walking, you, you wouldn't like go across the hall and be like, hey, Coach. No, you're like, yeah, I mean, you were like trying to get, a, you know, other side steer clear. Maybe he'll chew you out and get chew on your face. Like it was just that kind of intimidation. I don't want to be near him. What the writer is saying is, listen, listen, this is the old covenant. This is before Jesus. And how many of you are still struggling thinking that God is not approachable, thinking that you're still disconnected from him, thinking that you cannot approach him? How many of you, a next slide, are still here at the base of this mountain, like waiting for Moses to come back down? Like maybe Moses is going to, like maybe someone's going to come back down and, and tell me all the great things about God. What the cross of Christ has done is breaking that, broken that barrier so that now you can go up on the mountain. Now you can approach God. And here's the unbelievable thing. God spoke to Moses often on the mountaintop. And now, because of the cross of Christ and his deep grace and love, he reaches down to you, not on the mountaintop, but where? In the depths of the valley. In all of your hurt and pain, and the voice of God breaks through. You see what I'm saying? No longer in a burning bush on the top of some mountain. Now, meaning you, right where you're at, in that desolate pain of yours in the valley. The powerful voice of God. And so, the tale of two mountains begins. And he concludes his argument in this next verse, a very long verse that we're going to take some time to work through. So these one people can touch Mount Sinai, but now he uses a different argument to teach a powerful truth. But you have come to Mount Zion. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but why so much mountain talk? Like, like, like why is God and mountains so interconnected? I'll tell you, because they're amazing. You know what I mean? Like, mountains are one of the greatest things that God ever created, in my opinion. I took this picture uh, not too long ago. Next slide. I'm very picture happy tonight. Uh, how could anyone, I took that, come on now, maybe I am an artist, right? How could anyone look at that picture and say, no, 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 no there's, there's no God. That was some big blast, some big boom. Those, those were carved out by, you know, no, no, dude. Like God and mountains so interconnected because they're one of the greatest portrayals of his creation, right? Now, if it's not Mount Sinai, but if it's a different Mount, Mount Zion, we, we, we better figure out what Mount Zion is, right? You're like, so is that over, well... Technically, it does have a geographical location, not much to speak of, near Jerusalem. However, biblically, Mount Zion isn't a geographical center. 
different from Judaism, which was focused on a geographical center. Are we together? Jerusalem was the Judaism Mecca, okay, if you will. Christianity has no geographical center. So biblically, the scripture paints Mount Zion as this from the Psalms. Next slide. Psalm 132 says, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place on the mountain. But here's what the text says. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. So yes, it is a real location, but its location is eternal. Still mountainous in its imagery, sure, but Zechariah adds this. Next slide. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. So, what he's saying, Sinai, you could touch. If you touched it, you would die. Zion, we have a little bit different mountain here. We're talking about a mountain where God dwells forever. We're talking about an eternal place. We're, we're talking as the Hebrews continues. Next slide. He says, you have come to Mount Zion, and what's the next uh, part of the phrase there in white? And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You, on this side of the cross, have come not to a mountain that if you touch it, you'll die. You've come to a mountain that is a heavenly place. That is the place where God dwells eternally. That is the place of the living God. I don't know about you. Listen. One of the most encouraging things when I talk to folks who believe in other religions, and I ask them inevitably, so where, like, what happened to your guy? Well, he, uh, he actually died a couple hundred years ago. Really? And, and so, in, in all love and grace, so tell me, like, how's that working out for you? To know that, well, he's in heaven, you know, now in one of the mystical lands that he resides. Oh, Okay. Let me tell you about my God. Um, my God has always lived and died on my behalf to take my sins, and then he walked out of the grave on his own accord. That's my God. In fact, let me go ahead and add this. Uh, my God is living and will forever be living and, were, and, and was forever living. That's my God. I love the fact that we worship a God that has life, that is not some inan inanimate object, right? All of that will fade away, but our living God remains. And that's what he's telling his writers. Listen, listen, Sinai, that will be one day desolate. It may change, right? But this place, this God never does. And, and then he says, uh, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Have, have you ever said the word festal before? It's kind of a weird word, isn't it? Like, it kind of sounds like a bad word uh, of some kind. But isn't it amazing that the picture of Sinai is what? It's fear. So Sinai it is encompassed with this difficult understanding of fearing and awing God in that sense. But now things have turned from fear to festal. And let me just give you the, the Greek. The Greek word here is awesome. It's party, right? That's what this is. Is, is hope, is eternal joy. Innumerable angels. There's several texts. In the Old Testament, when God speaks, that talks about his angels surrounding and even the angels fearing the presence of God. But in this case, no, innumerable angels in festal gathering. Verse 23, and to the assembly, the Greek word there is ekklesia, which we translate in many cases church. 
and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now, that's interesting. You typically think of enrollment as some university or a scholastic term. In this case, anyone who is a follower of Christ is considered the firstborn because in Jewish history, like we learned last week, it's the firstborn who received the inheritance. So anyone who believes in Christ, confesses Him as Lord, follows Him and receives His forgiveness, is enrolled in what a couple passages later in the Bible called the Book of Life. You haven't come to Sinai. You've come to this place, he's saying. And I love this. And to God, the judge of all. The amazing picture that the writer portrays to his readers and listeners and hearers and to us is this, that one day all will be made right. Because a just God, a righteous God, a perfect God, a God who has done no wrong can righteously judge. Are we together? And if he can righteously judge, then that means there's a day coming when all will be made right. Are we together? When everything will be made right. That's why he adds, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You've come to a place where all healing and final restoring work of the gospel will be accomplished. The old covenant, Mount Sinai, fearful. You touch, you die. In this, a God who's approachable, a God who through His Son Jesus is so unbelievably approachable that He promises to make perfect those who are following Him by restoring and bringing ultimate healing. And I don't know about you, but, but I'm, I'm welcoming that. Anyone? Every day that goes by, I see more hurt and pain. More questions, more doubts, more quandary. Last night, you saw a massive, massive just burden of pain. And I think to myself, I can't wait until the living God makes all right. He restores and He heals and He takes my brokenness and the brokenness of this world and for His glory's sake shows what His power can do. And He's already doing it in us. He's already doing, doing it in us, sanctifying us, changing us, healing our brokenness. But one day, it'll all be made, as the Scripture says, perfect. Now, verse 24 is an interesting little ditty here. And to Jesus, again, look back in verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion. See how all these started? And to the city, and to innumerable, and to the assembly, and to God, and to the spirits. Verse 24, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. Now, uh, let me explain what mediator is. For those of you that have been journeying with us in Hebrews, you'll understand this. Someone who is a mediator is someone who stands in between. Someone who, in this case, intercedes. Jesus becomes the mediator between God and us. God is unapproachable. We, without Christ, could not approach God. Why? Because we're sinners. Many of you are trying to approach God without Christ, and I I ask you, how's that working for you? You're trying to say, here, God, look at all the amazing things I've done. Problem is, the Bible says your righteousness is as filthy rags. The literal uh, Hebrew to that is menstrual rags. It's, It's disgusting. It's nasty. Your righteousness means nothing to God apart from Christ. 
Now, yeah, many of you are like, here, God, look at how awesome I am. Look at how many people I've served. Look at how many people I've loved. Whoa, 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 whoa. Do you believe in my son Jesus, or are you trying to work your way to me? Some other people did that in Genesis 11. That's called the Tower of Babel. That didn't go so well for them, right? I confused them. I mixed up their languages. You cannot work your way to me only through Christ. So Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Where's the old? Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, and what does he have with him? The tablets, the Ten Commandments. You guys have seen the Charlton Heston movie. Come on, right? He brings the tablets down, and he says, here's the law. And he tells the people to do what? Follow it. Over and over and over in the scriptures. Obey my voice. Obey my voice. Obey my voice. Obey my voice. And what do the people do? Disobey his voice. Disobey his voice. Disobey his voice. That's what you're born into. But the scripture says, because of Jesus... Mediating a new covenant. Look at this. Unbelievable language. Please. One of my favorite verses now in this whole book of Hebrews. And to the sprinkled blood that, look at this, speaks a better word. Speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Well, you remember uh, not too long ago we studied Cain and Abel. Uh, Abel was uh, killed, murdered, in fact. And it was commended for his faith because his sacrifice meant something to God. But his blood was still the blood of a failed, flawed human. But the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. Speaks a better voice. That voice brings redemption and healing and forgiveness and love and encouragement. That voice brings all restoring power in the person of Christ. And so we go from this thunderous voice of God that is unapproachable to all of a sudden a better word that through Christ you can approach the God of the universe and be in intimate communion with Him. Is that encouraging to anyone else? Now, uh, you might think to yourself, okay, we're done. We're not. Uh, much more to do. Because I still step back from this, and I'm like, okay, uh, this is great and all. Uh, this, this is nice. And I get the blood piece, and the, that whole first section is still weird. At least we got to say tempest. We haven't said that in a while. Um, but, but what is this passage really saying? Next slide. I asked you guys when we started. If you had the opportunity to hear the voice of God, would you want to? Now, what's interesting about us humans is that the moment we get our mindset that there's something better out there, we shift from the thing we already have, hoping that this thing will come to fruition. Have you ever bought a new car? Been on a two-week, three-week search for it? Agree or disagree? The car that you are driving currently is gone. I mean, you're, you want that thing, you want to get rid of that. Once you've set your mind, I'm going to purchase a new vehicle. This old vehicle, it's like, get that. I, like, I don't even want to drive it anymore. I feel, I feel dirty in this thing. Like, I, you know, you're, you start test driving things. Like, you're ready to move on. You're ready to get done with it. I've heard so many Christians tell me through the years, I wish we were one of the disciples so we could, like, see all the, all the signs and all the miracles and hear all the teachings. You don't know what you have. 
You, my friend, do not understand what you have right now. You think the grass is greener on this side? You have the collection of God's voice. And even the disciples didn't have the word of God like this. They didn't have it collected. They couldn't look at the full story in this picture. They couldn't see the end. You have that. The question is, if you had the opportunity to hear the voice of God, would you want to? Here it is. The historical reference, all true, inerrant, God's voice, screaming, speaking, whispering out. And yet we have the audacity to say, yeah, I just need another sign. I just need another miracle. I just need another healing. The disciples would stand here and say, you have the collection of God's voice. We were reading it for days from a scroll. And yours is leather bound and even has pictures sometimes. Like, seriously. The voice of God is beaming through his scripture. And I struggle so much for our perspective as believers. Because we're saying, I want to hear his voice. I need his direction. I just... I. And yet the word isn't becoming a part of us. So the second thing I ask, have you heard his voice? And if so, what did, what did God say? We should be able to answer that question multiple times in one day, straight from the word. You're like, well, yeah, but I was waiting for the airplane to do it. No, no, listen. God's voice as a believer does not stop speaking from his word. Are, are we together? It doesn't stop speaking. I know you'll go through seasons where you're like, you know, I just, I'm not seeing it. I don't understand. His voice is just protruding from a scripture all the time. It does not stop. And the great thing about the Holy Spirit being inside believers is the Spirit stirs those words and brings life to them. The last question I ask you, if someone says to you that God told them to do something or that God spoke to them, what are your first thoughts typically? What are your first thoughts? Right. And sometimes they're rightful. Because people use the God card in, in like their most opportune times. Yeah, like, and this is classic in relationships. The second service will really appreciate this. Uh, you know, they'll be like, yeah, and God told me to break up with you. Yeah, we can go. God told us to get together. So I'm getting mixed messages here, you know. Like, it was just a couple days ago God told us to go on vacation together. And, I, you know, like, I don't understand. Like, what is God saying? But we, we like, we have the God credit card that... At, times of opportunity for us we just put out there right my first thought when people say God told me to do this I say how is it confirmed from the scripture well you know it was just a stirring in me okay fair enough yeah it will be stirred in you but it will never go against this so where has the scripture confirmed it well you know I haven't been reading in a couple months excuse me and you think you have the propensity currently to discern the voice of God when the collection of the voice of God, which is written on your heart, you're not even digging into. We need confirmation from God's word. And his voice never stops. I was praying earlier from Psalm 34 that God would deliver us from evil. Bring us out of temptation. In fact, right before this, he says, let's exalt him together. Right? Man, I just, I heard God's voice say, he'll deliver us from evil. Yeah, that's in Psalm 34. That's a good word, right? He will deliver you from evil. Now, in 9-11, which I know many of you guys are familiar with, a lot of powerful images of people, powerful stories, 
of people still alive as the rubble is sitting on top of them. And all of you guys have seen the footage where like the firemen are, you know, they're running around crazily for days looking for survivors. Imagine yourself underneath that rubble a little bit. You've just gone through a traumatic experience. I mean, wherever you were in the building, but you're alive, maybe a leg broken. You're alive. And all you hear is the pounding of drills or the, you hear nothing else. And in that moment, there's just maybe a little glimmer of hope. Maybe. If that drill can get to me, if this, then maybe I'll survive. But you have to agree with me on this. The moment you hear a voice, the moment in that rubble when all of a sudden someone screams out, is anyone in there? There's something about the voice that brings tremendous hope, isn't there? Picture yourself in a lost wilderness, wandering as a kid, exploring, completely lost, sitting out there thinking there's no way I'm ever going to get out of this. Think about the moment if all of a sudden you heard the voice of your parent nearby. Parents, have you ever lost your kid in a grocery store? may not want to admit to that, but have you? Store of some kind, wherever it is, there's this overwhelming panic. And you know, you're running around, you think, and all the worst thoughts are going through your mind in 20 seconds. And then the moment around the corner, you hear the whimper of your kid. The hope that comes in you, the confidence that comes in you. It's no wonder why Christians are cowards. The voice of God emboldens us. It gives us such confidence to look in the face of this lost and dying culture and say, no, 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 I stand for something else. I believe in the love of God. It's no wonder why we're off in the corner cowardice because we're not hearing his voice. We're not in the scripture because if we heard his voice, my friends, all hope and all confidence would evade out of our hearts. Are you with me? But we're cowards. Maybe thinking I'll be able to discern today though not seeking Him in prayer and Scripture. Well, God's voice uh, comes in many shapes and sizes. Uh, no need to turn there. I just want to close with a story. There's uh, this woman in the Scripture that gets to hear uh, God's voice in a very powerful way. Here's how the story goes. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, the woman of the city who was, a, anyone know the scripture, was a what? Was a sinner. When she uh, learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought in alabaster flask of ointment. She brings in some expensive perfume and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. She's like, okay, well, how can I hear God's voice in this story? Like, okay, Mark, you're, you're telling me that when I read his word, I'm going to hear his voice, and it may not come audibly. I, I, there's not like some God's special, you know, he headphones that I wear that all of a sudden, they got, so Mark, what are you saying? How do I hear his voice in this? In this story, you're the woman. 
broken, sinner, in desperate need of His grace and love. You're not on Mount Sinai anymore, touching something that if you did, you die. You're the woman who has found hope where only hope is, at the feet of Jesus. And so in your brokenness, in your reality of your state, what do you do? You fall on your feet, and though you may not have long hair, you can relate. You're there in all humility. Your tears hitting his feet, your hair wiping it up. And then I want to explain this to you. Jesus looks at her after some condemnation from some of the Pharisees at the house. Jesus looks at her and he says, your sins are forgiven. For some of you tonight, that's the precise voice you need to hear. Through Jesus, your sins are forgiven. A lot of voices saying a lot of things. A lot of competing contextualization. A lot of loudness. But there is one voice, just like when I was a kid. The voice of that parent man, it can shriek through all other voices. And that's the voice of the Christ saying, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. So maybe his voice for you tonight is seen in the story of this woman.